Okay, let's just uh, bow our hearts one more time as we come before God's word together. Father, we thank you that you're a God who cares about your creation. Thank you, Lord, that you cared so much that you sent your only son. Father, thank you too that you continue to challenge us, to speak to us through your word. Lord, just as Jesus brought great challenge to the people around the shores of Galilee, in Judea, in Jerusalem, as Lord, he came and spoke your truth. Lord, so your word still speaks truth to us today and challenges us. Father, as we study your word this morning, speak to us, we pray. Help us to see more of you. And Lord, we pray that we would decrease, that you might increase. Lord, just give us open hearts and ears that are ready to receive now, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're journeying through the book of Kings at the moment. And I really felt this was just where the Lord would have us. Um, As we started the year, we had a couple of topical studies and um, again, I think there was some real blessing in those things that the Lord showed us. Um, Kings, though, is just an incredible book. And I think over the next few weeks, we're going to really be challenged. Um, we're going to look this morning at the end of Solomon's reign, as it were. Um, and then leading on to next week, we're going to pick up and look at where it all falls apart. The problem is, it's very easy to look in from the outside and see that as being um, just a, an individual in history and that's what happened. But of course, we know scripture is far more than just an account of what's taken place. Because it's living and powerful. It speaks to us right here, right now, about our own situation and circumstances. And I think we're going to find over the next few weeks, there's going to be a storm coming for us as a fellowship. I think the Lord is going to challenge us. So get ready, because I don't know what the Lord is going to do, but I think whatever happens, we look at it in a positive light that the Lord allows these things to purify. And it's only because the Lord loves that he brings chastening. It's only because the Lord loves that he wants us to grow in knowledge and grace. So we'll see how, how we move forward, and we get into a time in the next few weeks as we start to look at the beginning of really the monarchy following the time of Solomon. And what a mess it became. And I think we'll see lots of lessons for us that we can learn. Uh, Paul urges us in 1 Corinthians 10 not to make the mistakes of the past. And so that's very much where we're heading. But this morning, let's just remind ourselves what we've seen so far. The first four chapters, of course, Solomon is uh, um, anointed and established as king. Uh, but the kingdom really established in chapter 2. There's this threat, this challenge from Adonijah, his half-brother. Um, but that's all put down and Solomon is firmly established on the throne. Chapter 3 is where Solomon uh, meets the Lord. The Lord reveals to himself to Solomon and Solomon asks for wisdom. And, of course, God promises wisdom and wealth and all the other things that go along, as we saw. Uh, And then chapter 4, really, it was just the strengthening of the kingdom as everything starts to be established now. Um, Solomon's enemies and things have been put to death or got rid of one way or another. And that leads on then to really the great commission for Solomon's life being fulfilled. And that was to build the temple. Remember, it wasn't just David that had given Solomon this task. It was God himself that had said that Solomon would be the one that would build this temple. 
And so chapter 5, there's the building preparations. In chapter 6, we see the actual construction of the temple. Uh, chapter 7, the first 12 verses, it seems to deal with Solomon's palace. There seems to be three buildings mentioned, but as we said at the time, it seems to be just one big complex with different sections in it. Um, chapter 7, the remainder of it, then deal with the temple furnishings. And there's a number of lessons in there for us. A lot of things that would speak of our own lives. Uh, and we'll just, again, remind ourselves... The the New Testament speaks of the fact that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So as we read this, we're not just looking at something that's historical. We're looking at something that's really speaking of our own lives when we're looking at the temple. And then finally, chapter 8, this incredible dedication of the temple. Uh, All these uh, great number of uh, bulls and goats, sheep and so on, that were offered up uh, in sacrifice as Solomon dedicates his temple. And then this incredible prayer. Solomon himself offers one of the most passionate prayers in the scripture. And uh, we looked last time how Daniel draws on the words that Solomon had prayed when he's in captivity in Babylon. And he looks towards Jerusalem and he prays another impassioned prayer in Daniel chapter 9. And so really just all of these things that we've seen so far. Just a reminder again of the building itself, this physical building. So we've got the temple proper. Uh, there's these storehouses around the side of it on three levels that we've seen. There was the main area where the lampstands were and so on. There's the altar of incense. Uh, and then we move into the Holy of Holies where these two uh, winged cherubim were with their wings touching the sides of the building, either side there. Uh, again, overstraddling the Ark of the Covenant. Very significant. We'll talk about that a bit more this morning. And all of this, again... These stones that have been hewn out of the quarry, again, just like us, taken from the Gentile world, effectively, but then overlaid in this beautiful gold. You know, all that hammering and chiseling work had all been done, and then they've been brought to the temple and put in their place these stones, just like us, living stones that God has been working on and preparing, and sometimes there's a lot of hammering and chiseling goes on in our own lives. But then they're overlaid in this pure gold. Just so they reflect the light that's in the temple. Speaking of the light that we should reflect by our lives. And then the things outside, we have these two um, incredible pillars. Now, typically, it seems to be that at the top of these things, there would have been um, the opportunity of putting um, oil or so on in there, and they could have actually uh, been lit. So the light from these two pillars, uh, maybe this drawing isn't quite accurate, because they seem to have stood slightly clear of the building itself. And the light from these pillars burning would have uh, been seen from miles around, as Jerusalem obviously sits on top of a hill. Uh, the other things outside here, uh, these ten uh, lavers um, for the priests to wash their hands for uh, ceremonial purposes, but also for hygiene. And then this big bronze laver that we looked at, uh, often looked at as a supposed criticism and uh, contradiction, because we're told that the diameter is three, sorry, the circumference is three times the diameter. And then you look at that little twist in the, the wording in the Hebrew, and you realize actually it's absolutely spot on, uh, the accuracy of it. It's incredible. Uh, and again, the uh, altar here, the brazen altar where all the sacrifices would have been offered as well. And of course, on the occasion of the dedication, there's too many offerings, so they end up overflowing into the courtyard out of this area um, to use that area as well for sacrificing. So that's what we've seen so far. Let's jump straight into chapter 9 as we move forward. And we read, It came to pass when Solomon had finished the building of the house of the Lord and the king's house, um, and all uh, Solomon's desire, which he uh, was pleased to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon the second time 
as he had appeared unto him at Gibeon. So now the second vision that Solomon has of the Lord. Now, this is incredible. I mean, how many of you have had a real vision from the Lord? I'm not saying, I mean, we all hear from the Lord as believers, we should do. But Solomon here, this very unique situation that God appears on these two occasions. Uh, and you think, given that, how could you ever be in a position where you would walk away from God? Or your heart wouldn't be fully toward God. And yet we're going to see that's exactly what happens. But God appears here the second time. And the Lord said unto him, I have heard thy prayer. Now that's the prayer that we were looking at last time in chapter 8, where Solomon was saying, you know, whatever happens to us as a people, as a nation, even if through disobedience we're cast out of the land, if we look towards this place and pray, hear our prayer. And so God now says that I've heard thy prayer and thy supplication that thou hast made before me. I've hallowed this house which thou hast built to put my name there forever, and my eyes and my heart shall be there perpetually. Now, just to... Quick detour into Psalm 20. Now this actually is a psalm that's written by David. But you'd think it could have been written by Solomon because of the wording of it. We just reread. The Lord hear thee in the day of trouble. The name of the God of Jacob defend thee. Send thee help from the sanctuary and strengthen thee out of Zion. Now this is exactly Solomon's prayer. It may well be on the back of this psalm that David had written that Solomon has kind of formed his own prayer that we saw in chapter 8. Remember all thy offerings and accept thy burnt sacrifice, Selah. Grant thee according to thine own heart and fulfill all thy counsel. We will rejoice in thy salvation and in the name of our God will we set up our banners. The Lord fulfill all thy petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will hear him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Now at that point, in a sense, Solomon tends to stop. In terms of his life and everything else. Because as we're seeing here, Solomon is being told by God that God will hear him. God will be his strength and everything else. But David put something that, as Jared highlighted this morning, I'm so glad Jared chose that verse as a kind of a verse for the week to, to meditate and to, to spend time thinking on. Because it just reminds us the contrast between these two individuals. That Solomon desired a house, whereas David desired the God of the house. And then we read verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Now sadly, Solomon is one that we see ending up effectively trusting in chariots and horses. You know, because of his might, because of the strength and the, the grandeur of the nation, he ends up in a place where he seems to just not quite have that same zeal for God that his father David did. But we read, and they are brought down and fallen, but we are risen to stand upright. Save, Lord, let the king hear us when we call. So there's a psalm again that's written by David, but Solomon just pleading to God that God would hear. And just a reminder in that psalm that God is a God that does hear. And then this response or this, this, this uh, vision that, that Solomon is receiving of the Lord carries on. And God says, if thou wilt walk with me, or walk before me as David thy father walked, in integrity of heart and in uprightness to do according to all that I have commanded thee and will keep my statutes and my judgments then. Now notice here we've got an if and a then. So this is conditional. You know, we looked at the beginning of the year and the promises of God. Now there are some promises of God that are unconditional. You can't lose them if you wanted to. But there's other promises of God that are conditional. They depend upon our obedience to receive blessing. If you look in Scripture, if you do a study on the blessings that are mentioned in Scripture, blessed is the man that, and then we're given conditions. The things that would happen if we do this, then the Lord will give us this. 
And we need to understand that our walk with the Lord and our, the blessings that we would like to see are dependent upon how that walk is. So if your walk before me and so on, then I will establish the throne of thy kingdom upon Israel forever, as I promised to David. Now, God has already made the promise to David that his kingdom will be established forever. But now it's Solomon that's being referenced here. Now the interesting thing is, what we're going to go on and see, is the line, the royal line of course comes down through Solomon. But the line to the Messiah doesn't pass through Solomon. And it's interesting that Solomon's line in that sense is not established forever. Because of, as we're going to go and see, his heart is not complete toward the Lord. So, then I will establish the throne of thy kingdom upon Israel forever, as I promised to David thy father, saying, There shall not fail thee a man upon the throne of Israel. But if you shall turn, notice again, if. But if you shall turn at all uh, from following me, or um, ye or your children, and will not keep my commandments and my statutes which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them. Then will I cut off Israel out of the land which I have given them. And this house which I have hallowed for my name I will cast out of my sight, and Israel shall be a proverb and a byword among all people. So once again, an if and a then. Uh, it must have been quite hard, in a sense, for Solomon to hear this, because having just gone through this wonderful experience, uh, and, and the joy, no doubt, that was abounding in Jerusalem, as this wonderful temple, just, just visually, just look at it with the gold, the gleaming, uh, the brightness of it, in the, the Middle Eastern sun there, would have been incredible. And then to suddenly hear this of God, that actually if you don't obey me, then Israel are going to be cut off, taken out of the land, and this house effectively be destroyed, you can almost wonder, you see Solomon asking the question, you know, really, would God actually do that? You know, just a reminder of Deuteronomy 28, because it's a chapter really that is another if and then, speaking of really the entire future of the nation of Israel. And it takes them from that point right to the regathering under the Messiah. But it's an if and a then. And of this house which is high, and everyone that passes by it, She'll be astonished and she'll hiss and they shall say, Why has the Lord done thus unto this land and to this house? And they shall answer, Because they forsook the Lord their God, who brought forth their fathers out of the land of Egypt and has taken hold upon other gods and have worshipped them and served them. Therefore has the Lord brought upon them all this evil. What an incredible situation because really it's saying that this temple that stands there, stands to as a testimony to the glory of God. But God would happily let this just disappear, be wiped away, if their hearts weren't true. You know, all the other things that we have as a fellowship, all the wonderful blessings that maybe surround us, you know, even the building we have and the, the band and all the things that we enjoy when we come together, none of that matters. It's about our hearts. And that's what really God is saying here. All of the, the other stuff, just doesn't matter and God is saying you know the other people would look and think why has God allowed that to happen to them well because they didn't trust God so we carry on you see the temple is one of the wonders of the ancient world and it become a symbol of God's favor upon the nation of Israel and so to see the temple in disrespect would be a sign that God's favor had been removed 
Now, would we expect that to happen to us? And kind of in a sense, we, we live in this nice little bubble as, as Christians. You know, we're given this great promise that the Holy Spirit is ours forever. You know, Saul messed up. He lost the Holy Spirit. David pleads in Psalm 51 to the Lord after this transgression with Bathsheba, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. For you and I, we're in a position, we've been given an unconditional promise that the Holy Spirit is ours forever. And sometimes we get a little complacent, don't we? Because we almost think that the conditions don't apply to us now. It's all job done and we're, we're nice and comfortable. But just look at some of these scriptures. In the New Testament, it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, just picking up verse 28. We read this often in regard to our communion. It says, let a man examine himself. And then, so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eats and drinks unworthily, eats and drinks damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this calls many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Now in a sense, there's a very much an if and a then there. Because we're being told that there is great blessing available. But there's also rebuke, chastisement. There are effects if we do not come to the Lord with the right heart, with the right mind, when we come to celebrate communion together. And even Paul is saying here that there were people in the church who were weak and sick. And someone even died. Now, one example we could maybe cite would be Ananias and Sapphira that we read about in the beginning of the book of Acts. You know, and you think, would God really do that to believers? But they were quite clearly believers. But they lied to God, and God deals with them accordingly. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, we read this. What know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? It starts to get a little bit uncomfortable because we start to see what God is saying about the temple... And now he says, hey, but remember that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own. For you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. That's not a suggestion, it's a commandment. That we're to glorify God in our bodies, regardless of who else is around us, whether we're on our own, whether we're in a group with other people, and in your spirit, which are God's. Again, just a reminder that we've been bought with a price. We no longer own ourselves. As Oswald Chambers so frequently taught, the real challenge is for us to give up the right to ourselves to him. 1 Corinthians 3. How about this one? Verse 16. Know you not that you are the temple of God? Once again, we're told the same thing. And that the Spirit of God dwells in you. If any man defile the temple of God... Him shall God destroy. Well, that's kind of pretty harsh language. Not what we really wanted to hear, is it? For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. And so even at this point, God just saying to Solomon, just warning him what he would do if his heart wasn't right. Let's move on. Verse 10, And it came to pass at the end of twenty years, so sometime now into Solomon's ministry, in fact, halfway through Solomon's ministry, because we're told that he reigns for 40 years, so halfway through his ministry, we're told when Solomon had built the two houses. Now, just to mention this, because we said earlier on in our study about these, um, the Solomon's house, it looks like there's potentially three buildings that are being mentioned. There's the, um, um, the, 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 the one, the, the, the Forest of Lebanon uh, one, 
uh, the cedars of Lebanon. Um, and some scholars and commentators think that was built in Lebanon. Um, but from the context in the text, it appears to me, and certainly a number of other scholars, seem to think that that was actually built in Jerusalem as well. It was like a state banqueting hall, uh, a use of state ceremony and occasions and so on. Uh, there was Solomon's residence, and there was also the place that was built for the daughter of Pharaoh and the harem and so on. Um, so three separate buildings, in a sense, are mentioned. But now we're told very clearly that Solomon built two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house. So it seemed to confirm what we'd already said. And then we're told uh, in verse 11, Now Hiram, the king of Tyre, had furnished Solomon with cedar trees and fir trees and with gold, according to all his desire, that... Um, Then King Solomon gave Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. And Hiram came out from Tyre to see the cities which Solomon had given him, and they pleased him not. Okay, These 20 cities, um, we'll find in the time of uh, Jesus, when Jesus comes, uh, this is referred to the Galilee uh, of the area, is the Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, one of the reasons it's believed to have been referred to as that is simply based upon this, that Solomon had given for a time, and I'll explain that in a moment, these cities to a Gentile. And so they became the Galilee of the Gentiles. They weren't in the, um, under the jurisdiction of Israel for this period of time. Uh, they were looked after by a, a foreign uh, power in that sense. Now, um, what we find is that Hiram is not particularly impressed as he comes out to look at these cities that he's been given. And he says, what cities are these which thou hast given me, my brother? And he called them uh, the land of Cable unto this day. Uh, Cable just simply means good for nothing. And Hiram sent to the king six score talents of gold. Now, that's not the gold that's used for the, for the temple, seemingly. Um, there's other gold that have been given and other things that have been given for the work of the temple. But it seems that Solomon here has a loan from Hiram of 120 talents of gold. And it looks like it's to help finance the building of the temple. Now, of course, Solomon becomes incredibly wealthy. But at the point he starts, at the beginning of his reign, effectively he needs some support, financial support. And so he goes to Hiram. Hiram agrees to help him with the laborers and everything else. We've already seen that. But it also seems here that he has these 120 talents of gold. And what seems to happen is as a security, Solomon gives him these 20 cities. So it's effectively, it's kind of like a kind of a down payment or, or a security that he's going to repay the loan that Hiram has given him. Um, Leviticus 23, 20, uh, 25, 23 says that the land shall not be sold forever. God had given this clear instruction to Solomon. Um, and so in this situation, Solomon possibly not trusting God, and I'll explain why I say that in a moment, but possibly not trusting God decides he needs some outside help. To finance this work. So he goes to Hiram, he gives him these cities for this period of time. Obviously, Hiram's not particularly impressed, but doesn't seem to do anything about it. It's like, well, okay, whatever. Um, and so he just settles for these 20 cities up around the area of Galilee uh, for this period of time. Um, and what we see is that these cities are later returned to Solomon. In actually 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 8, verse 2. And we read there, uh, it came to pass at the end of 20 years when Solomon had built the house of the Lord and his own house that the cities which Hiram had restored to Solomon, Solomon built them and caused the children of Israel to dwell there. So that's 2 Chronicles chapter 8 verse 2. These cities are then returned. So again, they were loaned out seemingly for this period of time. And once uh, the debt has been paid, seemingly then uh, they're given back. So... 
And this is the reason of the levy which King Solomon raised for to build the house of the Lord and his own house and Milo and the wall of Jerusalem and Hazor and Megiddo and Giza. Let me just talk you through and explain that. So what we're going to see now is the levy or the tax that's put upon the nations that are still living within the land. And this is the reason so that he could build the house of the Lord. So again, Solomon raising finance to do all of this work to build the house of the Lord. So that's the first thing um, that we're seeing. The second thing is the building of his own house. The next thing is Milo and the wall. I'll talk about that in a, in a moment. The fortifications to Jerusalem, effectively. And then the building of defense and probably the principal chariot cities. So Hazor, uh, which was up in the north. At uh, one time, apparently it was, a, it was a city, some 200 acres inside the actual walls of the city. Um, so a really, really large city. Megiddo, we're familiar with, uh, or we should be familiar with. It's in the, uh, the Valley of Megiddo, the Jezreel Valley. Some people who have been to Israel have actually been to Megiddo. Um, and then Giza again, this place that's in the south. So uh, these, stri- these strategically located places also are built. So Solomon raising money to do this work. Now just to mention this Milo, um, this is an idea of what Jerusalem would have looked like in Solomon's time. Now the Kidron Valley is still there to this day. You can go there and you can see there's all houses built up in here. It's a really quite a steep slope coming up this side and then you come down the Kidron Valley and then across and you come up into the city. On Palm Sunday as Jesus would have gone into the, the city, he would have come down the slopes here from the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley and then up and into the city. Um, so that's a, a typical, uh, or the, the valley's still there, and again this is the, the route somewhere into this gate that Jesus would have taken. But there was a valley seemingly as big the other side, but what it appears is that Solomon ends up filling in this gap. Uh, gets lots of material and earth and rubble and everything and ends up filling that up. Uh, just to give you an idea, this is the Kidron Valley today. You can see kind of there's quite a, a slope here going right down. Uh, that's on one side. Seemingly there was the same side of slope the other side, but that now has been largely filled in because of this work that was done by Solomon. Verse 16. For Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and taken Giza and burnt it with fire and slain the Canaanites that dwelt in the city. Now these were ones that Joshua had not dealt with, but remained there. And given it a present unto his daughter, Solomon's wife. So Pharaoh, not acting against Israel here or against Solomon, but going and getting rid of some of these Canaanites that are there, and he gives it to his daughter who is also married, uh, now Solomon. Um, Solomon built Giza and Beth Horon, uh, the Nether, uh, and uh, Bela, and Tadmor in the wilderness uh, in the land. So these other places being built and then we're told, and all the cities of store that Solomon had, and the cities for his chariots, and the cities for his horsemen, that which Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and all the land of his uh, dominion, and all the people that were left of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, which are the previous inhabitants of Jerusalem, which were not of the children of Israel, so they're the ones that are taxed, and so on, um, their children that were left after them in the land, whom the children of Israel also were not able to utterly destroy, upon those did Solomon levy a tribute of bond service unto this day. Okay? Now, it's just interesting, we've uh, looked at this previously, I think, but if we look at the areas where Joshua failed, and Israel failed under Joshua, to actually rid the inhabitants of the land. Interestingly, we have the area around the Golan Heights. We have what is today referred to as the West Bank, 
and then we have the area of Gaza. Those are the areas where those nations we just saw listed ended up remaining. Now Solomon puts them under tribute, they have to pay tax the whole time. But isn't it interesting that right to this day, those are the areas that Israel still have trouble with. Of course Jericho there, being the house of the moon god as was, and uh, Allah, who the Muslims worship, was the moon god, and uh, this is why they still have this crescent sign uh, and so on, uh, the, the crescent moon a number of other things we can look at maybe some other time. Uh, but again, just interesting to see um, if we don't claim the victory that God is giving us, how those things can become, if I may put it this way, a thorn in the flesh for us. Now, I'm not implying that Paul's thorn in the flesh was a result of disobedience or anything else, but what I am saying is that if, if there are things in our life that we refuse to address, they can go on being a problem. So we read verse 22, but the children of Israel did Solomon make no, of the children of Israel did Solomon make no bondmen. But they were men of war and his servants and his princes and his captains and rulers of his chariots and his horsemen. Uh, these were the chief of the officers that were over Solomon's work, 550, which bear rule over the people that wrought in the work. Now again, some people will comment and say that's a contradiction because the number that's given in Chronicles is different. Uh, it's, it's not really a big issue when you start looking at the details, as we've seen a number of times already. Um, they're talking about different uh, things uh, when they address it. Um, and clearly at one time it would seem that we had 550 um, that Solomon had appointed to rule over uh, the people in the work that was being done. But Pharaoh's daughter came up out of the city of David unto her house which Solomon had built for her. Then did he build Milo. Again, now that would seem to be this area where he's filling in that side of the valley on the opposite side of the Kidron Valley. And three times in a year did Solomon offer burnt offerings and peace offerings upon the altar which he built unto the Lord. Now probably, um, if we look back in Exodus, I believe it's Exodus 23, um, and certainly Leviticus uh, 23, and there's various other portions that will talk about it, but there were certain feasts in the year typically that the Jews would attend. Now actually, really we're looking at the three groups of feastings because we have of course um, the first group which is the Feast of Unleavened Bread that they were told to go and celebrate. Now there is a little bit of a, I think a misunderstanding because people think when we talk about the Feast of Unleavened Bread we're talking specifically about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But actually we're talking about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So we'd like me to unpack that a little more. Okay, so... We have a period of seven days when Israel were not to eat unleavened bread. So it was called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But on the 15th day of the um, first month of the year for them, there was a specific day, a one-day celebration, that itself was called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So we have a seven-day period that's referred to as the Feast of Unleavened Bread, because it was a Feast of Unleavened Bread. But we have a specific day within that group when it was a very specific day referred to as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So the first, the first day was the 14th, which was the Passover. The next day, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then on the Sunday of that week following those events, we would have then the Feast of First Fruits. Now that becomes the first time in the year when people would go to Jerusalem and offer up their sacrifice and so on to the Lord. We then have the Feast of Pentecost. Again, 50 days after the Feast of um, First Fruits, and we get this Pentecost celebration. Of course, that's why the Jews were in uh, Jerusalem and many other uh, proselytes and so on on the day of Pentecost, as we know it, in the, the book of Acts. They were there for this feast day. 
And then we get to the end of their calendar in the seventh month and we get the Feast of Tabernacles. But obviously surrounding that, we've got the other feasts that tail out their, their, their kind of feast year, as it were. And so on those three occasions, really the beginning of the year for the Feast of Pentecost and then also for the Feast of Tabernacles and the other feasts um, that uh, surround that, um, also again at the end of the year so these three occasions would be when these events would have taken place and so again just read, let me read verse 25 and three times in the year did solomon offer burnt offerings and peace offerings upon the altar which he built unto the lord and he built burnt incense upon the altar that was before the lord so he finished the house all done job done and king solomon made a navy of ships in Ezion Giba, uh, which is beside Iloth, or to you and I, Elat today, uh, down on the side of the Red Sea. And it says here, on the shores of the Red Sea, in the land of Edom. Red, uh, Edom, you'll know, means red. Uh, Esau was uh, a red-headed, kind of hairy individual that we're told in Scripture. Um, and the area that he then ends up living becomes known as Edom. Um, interestingly, the rocks in that region are also a reddish colour. And so this is why the Red Sea is named the Red Sea. Some people have uh, tried to say it was the Reed Sea. And of course that the children of Israel crossed over on a bed of reeds. And of course it's nonsense. It really, really is meaning red because of Edom and because of the colour of the rocks there. And then we're told, verse 27, And Hiram sent in the navy um, his servants, shipmen that had knowledge of the sea, with the servants of Solomon. So these two nations kind of working alongside each other. And they came to Ophir and fetched from thence gold, 420 talents, and brought it to King Solomon. So again, even more gold now being brought in. But this gold seemingly is the gold um, that's not coming out of Hiram's pocket, that have been loaned to Solomon. This is the gold that's being taken and now used in, in again for the construction and for the overlaying of everything that was in the temple. Let's just take into chapter 10. And when the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to prove him with hard questions. And she came to Jerusalem with a very great train and camels that bear spices, very much gold and precious stones. And when she was come to Solomon, she communed with him of all that was in her heart. And Solomon told her all her questions. There was not anything hid from the king which he told her not. So and this lady is now coming with Sheba uh, and Dedan, uh, and names that you'll, you'll see. We'll look at them in a moment from where they appear. Um, but certainly south of Israel, um, quite probably uh, down into Africa or possibly even Arabia, uh, this area where she came from. And uh, she makes this journey just to quiz Solomon. She's heard how great and marvelous this kingdom is becoming. And so these questions are asked of her. And when the Queen of Sheba had seen all Solomon's wisdom and the house that he had built and the meat of his table and the sitting of his servants and the attendance of his ministers and their apparel and his cupbearers and his ascent by which he went up unto the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. She's just blown away by this experience of coming to see Solomon. And whatever life was like in her own land, this is nothing that she'd ever seen before. And she said to the king, It was a true report that I heard in my own land of thine acts and of thy wisdom. Howbeit I believed not the words until I came and mine own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not uh, told me. Thy wisdom, thy prosperity exceeds the fame which I had heard. Happy are thy men, happy are thy servants which stand continually before thee, and that they hear thy wisdom. 
You know, we could go off on a tangent here and just talk about the way it is for people in the world who hear about God. Because, I mean, she'd heard about Solomon, not just about Solomon, how great he was, but about his God. And we just see that reference a moment ago. And when people hear about us and the God we serve, they'll often try and trip us up with hard questions. They'll challenge us. But whatever we say is nothing compared to that experience when they come to see God and meet God for themselves. And of course, when somebody comes to that place of realizing that God really is God, that Jesus is the Savior, well, there's nothing that can prepare you for that experience. And she here is again just blown away as she comes to see Solomon. Uh, how much better when somebody comes to meet Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. Blessed be the Lord thy God, which delighted in thee to set thee on the throne of Israel, because the Lord loved Israel forever, therefore made he the king to do judgment and justice and she gave the king interesting note, note this 120 talents of gold i just wonder whether or not solomon just jumped the gun in giving those cities of israel away even just for a time because what he got from Hiram was 120 talents of gold seemingly to finance some of the work that was being done and then this individual comes. Solomon knew nothing about the fact that she was coming, it hadn't been arranged or anything like that. She makes a decision herself to come. But she comes and she gives him a gift. Exactly the same amount that he borrowed, seemingly. I just wonder, you know, whether that speaks so much of the times that we don't trust God enough and we try and do something ourselves and then we realise that actually God was there all along. You know, we can't ever get into a situation that God wasn't already there before us and knew the circumstances. God knows our need. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. We're never going to take God by surprise. There's never going to be a situation one, more, one morning when you wake up and you think, wow, God didn't know about this. Right, I've got to do something. It doesn't happen. God knows everything about every situation. And as we've already seen, you've been bought with a price already. You know? Jesus spoke of the lilies of the field. They were compared to Solomon. Saying Solomon in all his glory wasn't compared with those. And Jesus goes on to say that the Lord knows the things that you need. Yeah, I just again wonder whether this is just a, a typical case of us not quite trusting God enough. But she gave the king 120 talents of gold and spices, very great store and precious stones. And there came no more such abundance of spices as these which the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Now, I'm just going to have a quick detour, because this leads to a legend. Now, whether there's any truth in it, in a sense, is kind of irrelevant, because of the point we're going to make in a moment. Because the Ethiopians claimed that the Queen of Sheba was their queen. Now, this is detailed in a famous epic of theirs. I'm probably going to mispronounce this, but the Kibra Nagast, uh, which just simply means the glory of kings. And this is an Ethiopian legend that they have. It's detailed in this. And the legend holds that the queen of Sheba ends up in a relationship with King Solomon, and they have a child together. And that child becomes a king who's called Menelik. Now, when Menelik was grown, apparently, according to this legend, he comes and visits his father, who anoints him to rule in Africa, and sent the sons of his own counsellors to assist Menelik as king. So, again, this isn't scripture, this is the legend that they have and has been passed down generation to generation. Now, according to the legend, the young men who were 
the sons of Solomon's counsellors were reluctant to leave the temple in Jerusalem. Of course, you think of the glory, the grandeur and everything else of it. They were kind of reluctant to, to go somewhere else. But seemingly they're convinced um, eventually that they do this. But one of the reasons they did want to go is because the temple contained the Ark of the Covenant. Remember, it's not just a building for a building's sake. It was a building in which the Ark of the Covenant was contained. This was the Ark that had been built when they were in the wilderness after they'd been led across the Red Sea and that they'd carried in front of them when they'd gone and marched against the armies uh, that they were, they were fighting. It was the Ark that the Philistines had captured and to their own detriment, uh, painfully so, if you remember that account in Samuel. Eventually that ark had been returned. David wants to, re- uh, to put it somewhere special. Uh, eventually it's brought to Jerusalem and put in the tabernacle in Jerusalem and then finally moved in to the temple. And becomes really the whole central focus of this because the ark in, within it contained the, the, the Ten Commandments written on these tablets of stone and the rod of Aaron and, and so on and the pot of manna. You know, but the point of it was it really represented God in their midst. So you can understand why these individuals were not so keen to leave if this legend has any truth in it whatsoever. But apparently, so the legend says, they secretly removed the ark and took it with them to Ethiopia and they left a replica in Israel. Now this is again the legend and I'll comment on it in a moment. Um, Now for centuries Ethiopian tradition has maintained that they have the true ark and it's still preserved and guarded in a compound at Aksum in Ethiopia. Now, the Ethiopian legend goes back to at least the 13th century. Beyond that point, it's difficult to verify anything. Um, but the actual writing of it we have going back to that point, um, we really don't know the real origin of it. But what is certain, and this is why, in a sense, the, whether the legend is true or not is largely irrelevant, is that the Ethiopians today believe that they have the Ark. They believe they have the true Ark, even to this day. Now, from the restoration of the Solomonic dynasty, uh, dynasty in 1270 in Ethiopia until the death of the last emperor, Haile Selassie, the emperors of Ethiopia all claimed descent from Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. This is, this is not just some side thing. This is something that as a nation they've held to. Um, Haile Selassie... 1892 to 1975, was a grand-nephew of Emperor Menelik II. He was the last emperor, and the, sorry, the last emperor of Ethiopia from 1930 to 74. So the Solomonic claim was part of the constitution proclaimed by Selassie in 1955. So they believe this, whether it be true or not. Now, just as an aside, as we kind of build and explain more of this, in Acts chapter 8, you remember we have this account where the angel of the Lord speaks to Philip, says, Arise, go toward the south unto the way that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza, which is desert. We spend a long time just talking about his obedience. He just gets up and goes. You know, not, well, why? Why, Lord? There's nothing there. But he goes anyway. He rose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority, under Candy's queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all the treasure, had come to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning, sitting in his chariot, and read Isaiah the prophet. So this man is effectively the chief treasurer for the queen of Ethiopia. And he's been sent on a mission to Jerusalem for an unspecified reason. But he's a chief treasurer. He's in charge of the treasure. 
and now he's returning. And we know from the account that he's reading Isaiah and he's confused and he asks Philip to explain and Philip explains and he ends up getting baptised and so on. Philip explains that the individual in the book of Isaiah that's being referenced in Isaiah 53 is Jesus and explains what has just happened. Now, this individual has just been in Jerusalem. He may well have seen the crucifixion and all the events that have been going on. But he's confused by all of this and he's going back. So why this individual? Well, <clears throat> why had he been sent on a state visit anyway? Because he's been sent with his royal entourage, clearly that's there. You know, why of all people to send this man, the chief treasurer, And why was he reading the Jewish scriptures? What what does the Holy Spirit want you and I to know about this encounter? Why is it even in scripture? Well, Proverbs 25.2 says, It's the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honour of kings is to search out a matter. Now, just looking from a historical point of view, if we look from the time of the, the flood and after the children of Noah spread out around the world, we find that Japheth, one of the sons of Noah, spread out into the area, effectively Europe. Okay, Magog, Meshach, Goma are some of the principal names that are mentioned there. But the descendants of Noah from Japheth's line uh, effectively come from Europe. So if you're from Europe, you're more than likely descended from Japheth. Ham, we're told, uh, they effectively go, the descendants of Ham, to northern Africa and into Africa, the areas around the Middle East, and also the Sinites or the Chinese also descendant from Ham. Uh, we have there. Uh, and notice also we've got Dedan and Sheba, which seem to be in this area down today in Arabia. And then uh, we have Shem. Well, they don't travel anywhere near as far. The Shemites, or the way we get the word Semitic, anti-Semitic, being a, those that are against the descendants of Shem, and particularly the Jews in context, stayed in this geographical region around there. And of course the area we're most interested in is the land of Israel. Now, if we look at that in a kind of a table... We've got the descendants of Japheth, again, the Europeans typically coming down that side. Then Shem being, as far as we're concerned, the Israelites. And then Ham's descendants coming down. And we've got all these various different names here. Um, Cush being very significant. He's the one responsible seemingly for building the Tower of Babel. Um, It's his son. Um, there's Nimrod, uh, we know much about as well. Again, Sheba and Dedan in this group. Mizram uh, is where the Egyptians come from, and then also uh, all of this group here, including the Philistines, who didn't originally inhabit the land, they moved in later on, uh, and so on. Um, but all of that area. And these are the ones, typically the Canaanites, who we find in the land who are the ones that Israel really have issues with and problems with, the ones that God specifically says they're to be removed from the land. So just seeing how that all pans out from a family tree perspective. Now, the first interaction between the descendants of Shem and Cush that we've just looked at in Scripture is, seemingly, there's no other scriptural reference that we can find, the first interaction is between uh, the Queen of Sheba and Solomon at this point. This is the first time there's any kind of tie-up between these descendants. Uh, so, and again, as we've said, this is what gives rise to this legend that the Ethiopians have. Now, at the time, uh, the, the kingdom was divided. So moving on a little bit from where we are in our study, and we'll see this over the coming weeks, to when the kingdom divides, uh, and then following that also, a number of Jews migrate and go down to Egypt. Now that happens continually. Jeremiah has a big problem with this and he speaks a lot about the Jews that were going off down into Egypt. 
And the Jewish community begins to grow there. 2 Chronicles 35.21 um, is another interesting link in this chain that we're putting together. I'm not going to read through all the text, but basically we have a situation where Josiah is told not to go out against the king of Egypt, who's coming up to battle against, or coming up to uh, battle with the Assyrians as it happens. And the Assyrians were Israel's enemies. So in a sense, you think Josiah would just allow the Egyptians to go and do their battle because it's going to benefit him if they win. In fact, just look at this here. Because we're told, is that, is that for God commanded me, this is Necho, the king of Egypt, for God commanded me to make haste, forbear thee from meddling with God. That's a very bold claim for a, a Gentile king, an Egyptian king, unless he's got some reason to say that. But then he says, who is with me? He claims that God is with him. That he destroyed thee not. Now, this is very interesting because, nevertheless, we're told Josiah would not turn his face from him, but disguised himself that he may fight with him. And hearkened not unto the words of Necho. Now, this is interesting because all scripture is inspired of God. The words of Necho in scripture, we're told, are from the mouth of God. So Necho seemingly is speaking with the authority that God has given him. He's saying he's coming out and God is with him. And he ends up, he says, come to fight in the valley of Megiddo. And said unto uh, the Levites, and this is another part of it, that this is what Josiah is saying then to the Levites, said to the Levites that taught all Israel, which were holy unto the Lord, put the holy ark in the house which Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, did build. And it shall not be a burden upon your shoulders. Serve now the Lord your God and his people Israel. Now, the fact that he's being told, they're being told to put the ark back in the temple clearly shows you that it's not there. The ark at this point had been removed from the temple. Now I'm not suggesting that the legend that the Ethiopians have is true and that it moved to that point because the ark seemingly was in Israel later than that point. But at some point the ark is removed it looks like from the context of all of this that the ark is with Pharaoh Necho at this point and that he's marching with the ark into battle. And he says, God is with me. The priests are out there carrying the ark. And the king of Israel at this point, Josiah, is saying, put the ark back. Don't let it be a burden on your shoulders. So all very interesting. So the conjecture is that during the reign of Manasseh, one of the other kings that we'll get to later on, the ark is then taken by the priests for protection. Manasseh was a very evil king, and we'll get to that. Um, but partly because of the way he was, seemingly the priests would have taken it away for protection. And then it seems like it could have been taken down to Egypt and placed in a Jewish temple. Now, in Egypt, they actually built a number of uh, buildings to replicate that which they had in Egypt. And they've actually discovered there was a building in Egypt itself that was exactly the same dimensions as the temple. So the Jewish community there had built their own temple so that they could carry on worshipping God in this land that they'd gone to. But that aside, this ark seems to have been taken then to another temple, or typically tabernacle, uh, Aswan, uh, Elephantine Island. Um, now that's again on the border of Ethiopia. In around 400 BC, so 400 years before Jesus, uh, this community again migrates down into Ethiopia. 
And the ark from that point then goes to Lake Tanis, it would seem. Uh, now this is just the remains of what's there at Elephantine Island, and archaeologists have found so many Jewish artifacts and everything at this point. Lake Tanis, a beautiful lake uh, in Ethiopia that's there, and within this is a little island. Um, and it seems as if the ark remained on Lake Tanis for somewhere in the region of 800 years. There's uh, Bob Cornuke and others have been there. They've excavated. They've seen a lot of the evidence strongly suggests this is the case. But around 400 AD, it seems to have been moved to Aksum back in mainland Ethiopia, which is where it resides to this day. Now, that's what the Ethiopians claim, that it is there. But seemingly there is a lot of interesting historical evidence to support this. And there's some interesting biblical things we've just touched on this morning, just to uh, draw your attention to it. Now, I'm not going to read through these things. I'll leave them in the notes because if you want to have a look afterwards. But these are just some notes that talk about the fact that this ark is, or the Ethiopians believe the ark is in this building to this day. They still celebrate. Um, and of course the question then is how does this tie in with the Ethiopian uh, eunuch, the one that Philip spoke to? Well, because we have a number of interesting scriptures. One of them is in Isaiah 18 verse 7. We're told, in that time shall the present, not told what the present is, be brought unto the Lord of hosts, of a people scattered and peeled, from a people terrible from their beginning hitherto. Now, in the context, he's speaking of the Ethiopians. That's clear from the whole of the context of Isaiah 18 at this point. A nation meted out and trodden underfoot, whose land the rivers have spoiled, to a place of the name of the Lord of hosts, the Mount Zion. What it's saying is, at some point in the future, seemingly when the Messiah comes, a present will be bought from Ethiopia to Mount Zion, to the King, to Jesus, to the Messiah that's now sitting on his throne or ready to sit on his throne. Now, what's also very interesting, of course, is if we look at, that's just the, the church or the building where apparently this is stored, it's armed guards surrounding this place, you can't get in there if you wanted to. Um, but if you look at the idea of the ark, on top of it we have what's referred to as the mercy seat. Now, interestingly, it seems to be a seat. Whereas the ark was made of wood and overlaid with gold, and one report that's come out has said that the wood, the acacia wood, has started to just disintegrate. So the box itself effectively is losing its integrity. The seat was made of solid gold, so that won't be a problem. And so the conjecture is that that seat will become the very throne upon which the Messiah will sit and reign and it will be presented back from the Egyptians to the Jews. Now, in amongst all of that, there's a lot of legend and things that certainly the Ethiopians have got. And again, this is conjecture, but there is a lot of biblical support for this, and certainly there's a lot of historical support for this. I'll let you read the other notes that we just skipped over there a moment ago. But let's round out and conclude the study for now. And the navy, also of Hiram, that brought gold from Ophir, brought in from Ophir great um, plenty of Almug trees and precious stones. And the king made of the Almug trees pillars for the house of the Lord, um, for the king's house. Harps also and psalteries for singers. There came no such uh, Almug trees, uh, nor were seen unto this day. Just speaking of the quality of them. And King Solomon gave unto the queen of Sheba all her desire, whatsoever she asked, besides all that which Solomon gave uh, her of his royal bounty, she also turned and went to her own country, she and her servants. Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was six hundred, three score and six talents of gold. Very easy just to read over that, but notice the number, six, six, six. 
There are people that make a big thing of this. Uh, and the fact that Solomon is only ever given it in very negative comparisons in Scripture. And uh, I'll let you run with that if you want to. But he's, this is the only other time we have kind of this 666 occur in Scripture. Other than, of course, in Revelation, which we're familiar with. Beside that he had of the merchant men and of the traffic of the spice merchants and of all the kings of Arabia and of the governors of the country. And King Solomon made 200 targets of beaten gold. Uh, 600 shekels of gold went to one target. And he made 300 shields of beaten gold. Uh, <clears throat> three pound of gold went into one shield. And the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. Now that's that one of these buildings that seemed to be part of this complex that he built in Jerusalem. Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with the best gold. Uh, the throne had six steps and the top of the throne was, was rounded behind uh, and there were uh, stays on either side of the place of the seat and two lions stood beside the stays and twelve lions stood there on one side and on the other uh, upon the six steps there was not the like made in any kingdom. So this throne and the steps going up to it were really just, just so splendid. And all of King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold. Of course, these are the vessels that eventually ended up taking to Assyria and uh, Babylon and so on. And all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold, number of silver. It was counted nothing in the days of Solomon. For the king had at sea a navy of Tarshish with the navy of Hiram. Uh, once in three years came the navy of Tarshish, bringing gold and silver, ivory and apes and peacocks, uh, so King Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth for riches and for wisdom. Now just to mention here, this mention of Tarshish, because there are those that believe, and we're told elsewhere, that Tarshish was a place where it was a source of tin. And some people believe, and it's good, again, compelling conjecture, that Britain is Tarshish from a scriptural perspective at this point in time. It's a three-year round trip is seemingly what's happening here. And en route, they're also picking up. It doesn't mean that all of this is coming from Tarshish, um, but gold, silver, ivory, apes, peacocks. So quite possibly stopping at various places in North Africa on its route back up to Tarshish and then back round. Um, I believe it was... Um, the Greek um, um, uh, poet, whose name escapes me at the moment, um, anyway, um, he had suggested or talked about Tarshish being beyond the Pillars of Hercules. And that's talking about the entrance to the Mediterranean, uh, with uh, Gibraltar being one side and then the North Africa being the other. And so Tarshish clearly seems to be outside of the Mediterranean area. And again, it would have taken three years seemingly to do this journey of there and back. So just as an aside, uh, it doesn't really mean anything, but uh, just for interest. Um, so Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth for riches and wisdom, and all the earth sought Solomon to hear his wisdom which God had put in his heart. And they brought every man his present, vessels of silver and vessels of gold and garments and armor and spices, horses and mules, uh, a rate year by year. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. Remember the verse we looked at earlier from Psalm 20. And he had... A thousand or four hundred chariots and twelve thousand horsemen whom he bestowed in the cities of chariots and with the king of Jerusalem. We looked at that verse quite a lot in our previous session because of the alleged contradiction which we totally dealt with. <clears throat> and the king made silver to be in Jerusalem as stones and cedars he made to be as sycamore trees that are in the vale uh, for abundance. And Solomon had horses brought out of Egypt and linen yarn. The king's merchants received the linen yarn at a price. 
And a chariot came up and went out of Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And so for all the kings of the Hittites and for the kings of Syria, did they bring them out of their means. In other words, all this tribute, all this money is flowing into Solomon's royal coffers. Uh, And again, just the whole of uh, the, the empire, the, the, the Jewish empire at this point, uh, it, it never gets to a point where it's larger than this. Um, all the nations bringing in tribute, uh, all subject to Solomon because of the size of uh, his, his reign of his kingdom at this point in time. And again, so much wealth, so many things. But as we looked previously, and again we'll pick up and look next week, how Solomon disobeyed God's instructions about multiplying these things to himself. Shouldn't have multiplied wives, shouldn't have gone down to Egypt to get horses, and we'll look at that in more detail, and how the next chapter starts. It just starts, but. And we start to see from this point the downfall. So verse, chapter 11 just starts there and says, But King Solomon loved many strange women. And he goes on from that point, and we start to see the decline. This is the height of Solomon's reign and rule and everything else. Um, but we look at the, the real challenge that's going to come to him and maybe also to us as the Lord really challenges where our hearts are. So let's, uh, for now, conclude and let's bow our hearts. Well, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths that are in, uh, Lord, they're in. And we just pray that you continually speak to us, draw us closer to you. Father, we thank you for the history we have recorded. But Lord, within that, we see so many things that points to our own walk, our own life. Lord, we're reminded again that the temple truly is, Lord, or the, the, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, just as we see this temple was so beautifully finished, so wonderful, such a glorious thing to behold, but Lord was there to bring glory to you, so our lives also are there to bring glory to you. Lord, we pray that you speak to us. Lord, challenge us. And Lord, mould us and make us, us, and make us into what you want us to be that we truly do bear that light, that we become a testimony to all those who would look. So Lord, keep our hearts, we pray, and the knowledge and the love of Christ, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.